Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. Today, Reinventing Solidarity brings New Labor Forum editorial board member Adolf Reed Jr. in conversation with our book reviews editor, Samir Santi. Called by Cornell West, the towering radical theorist of American democracy of his generation, Reed is also of the last generation to have been raised in the South under Jim Crow. It's partly this fact that spurred his recent book, The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives. In this episode, Reed discusses the book, describing the Jim Crow order as not all that orderly. This is because it was the product, he argues, of decades of post-emancipation contention between freed slaves, white farmers and laborers, and the ruling class of white planters and merchants. As an outgrowth of that contestation in various precincts of the South, Jim Crow's rules and applications fluctuated sometimes significantly by locale. Reed describes his own interaction with these shifting, very often treacherous rules as a way to explore the power alignments that shaped Jim Crow and continue to shape its afterlives. We hope you'll find this conversation as compelling and illuminating as we do. I'm really, really excited for this one for a variety of reasons, which I'll get to, but we're extremely thrilled, all of us, to be joined today by Dr. Adolph Reed Jr. Professor Reed's the author of a couple of forthcoming books in addition to a lot of other stuff over many years and a distinguished academic, political, and intellectual career. He's currently Professor Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. I'll also add that Adolf has a new column that's beginning in the Nation magazine, and I think the first one should be out any day now. And before we get started, I just want to say that you know this is a particularly meaningful event for me because I've known Adolf my entire adult life after having re- actually really randomly stumbled into one of his courses as an under undergraduate. And that initial interaction set me off on this path that I've been traveling basically ever since. And over the years, decades at this point, Adolf has been a constant source of support, both as a political and intellectual mentor, and really, most importantly, as a very, very dear friend. So it's really special to be able to do this one, and especially to focus on this book, because, you know, Adolf's scholarly and political writing has been so important for me, as it has been for many of you here today, I'm sure. But this book, The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives, is considerably more personal than most of that work. And though I should note that it is very much not a memoir, I think at one point he wanted to include an anti-memoir somewhere in the title. I, I can understand why, you know, some people might feel like it's a memoir when they read it. So so to get us going, Adolf, can you talk a little bit about what moved you to write this particular book when you did? 
Yeah, thanks for the wonderful introduction. It's always great to see you. And yeah, I've been friends for a long, long time. Well, yeah, I think I mentioned in the book that what became the book grew out of a conversation a couple of friends of mine and I had been having over the course of a couple of years about how in our rough age cohort, one's seven years older than I, the other's 10 years younger, departs a stage of history, there really won't be anyone else around with any lived connection to the Jim Crow era. And what I don't say in the book is that that was especially meaningful for us because we were kind of appalled by the way that public recollections or reflections or reconstructions of the Jim Crow era had been going to that point. Generally, people thought, not just our students, but everybody else, that before the March on Washington in 1963, there was like a seamless blur that ran of the bad old-timey times that ran from slavery to August 28, 1963, basically, or at least to the Brown decision. And it was indistinguishable. And so one of the things that I and we wanted to do was to sort of address the historical specificity of that era. So I just started writing you know, with no particular goal or purpose. And what eventually became the book, I'll share the long baggy dog story. And that was around the turn of the current century. And by the time the book became a book, things had changed enough so that the characteristics of representing Jim Crow that we had all been concerned about at the end of the 20th century had blown up and had metastasized, I put it someplace, to an even crazier way of thinking about the relation between past and present. So, so ironically, the book seemed all the more kind of pertinent when it came out than it did when the seed was planted for it. Thanks for that kind of framing of where this came from. You know, in terms of the crazy ways things are past and present is thought of today, one of your one of your stated objectives in this book is to get at that, specifically to shed light on how everyday life under Jim Crow was lived. You know, at some point that apart from academic specialists, very little commentary on, you know, the pre-civil rights era South provides, as you write, a sense of how the segregationist regime was held together, what practical purposes it served and for whom, what it ultimately was. And you go on to say, and I think this maybe connects to some of what you we were just talking about that quote abstractions like prejudice bigotry racism and most recently an eternal white supremacy tell us nothing about how the order operated how its official and unofficial protocols organized people's lives this is really what the whole book's about and so to get the full picture people ought to read the thing but to the extent that it's possible can you explain what this kind of exploration into the quotidian aspects of the regime reveals well one of the reasons that people don't make clear distinctions between slavery and jim crow is that they focus on the abstraction of racism or its cognates instead of concrete patterns of social relations. I've seen in recent years some scholars argue that emancipation was a non-event. That's kind of only a perspective you can have if you weren't anywhere around emancipation, right? But people tend to perceive like a seamless web of oppression porn, as my son sometimes puts it, right? I mean, there was racism throughout the slave era and there's racism throughout Jim Crow and there's racism today. But to make sense of how we got to where we are from where we were, and I think that's a really important objective, is to try to think about you know, the relation between past and present in a different kind of way, right? That sees the present as a complicated, not linear by any means, but outgrowth of conflicts and tensions and contradictions in social formations in the past. Now, this is a somewhat different one, but one thing I got a lot of fun out of teaching was how the victory of pro-slavery Democrats in the 1840s led to the successful prosecution of the war against Mexico, which was a victory for that side. But at the same time, it was a victory that 
set in motion the forces that unraveled the Democratic coalition because uh, the Democratic coalition was an intrinsically unstable alliance of middling to upper middling level Southern planters who wanted Western expansion. Yeah, sure, for racist reasons, whatever. But they wanted it concretely to extend slavery. And the other big portion of the Democratic coalition was Northern white workers who wanted Western expansion to become homesteaders and yeomen. Uh, so they work together, and that's one of the reasons that white northern workers are pro-slavery, or at least racist. And I often submit that it's just as likely that for many people that they were pro-slavery or racist because they were Democrats rather than the other way around. But anyway, they win the war, they get their victory. The slave owners pressed to extend slavery through harsh life on the hidden little secret of the at the contradiction of the core of the Democratic alliance, and that led to a growth, a rapid growth of anti-slavery sentiment outside the South, which gave birth to two new specifically anti-slavery parties, Free Soil and Liberty. And then eventually, you know, not too long after the fact, actually, the collapse of the Whigs, the birth of the Republicans as a national anti-slavery party. They won the election in 1860, which forces the slaveholding South to recede or to claim that they have a right to secede, which provokes a civil war, which brings the end of slavery. Which it shows, you know, the world moves by contradiction, basically, as a wise man once said. And in the same way, so the Jim Crow era was specifically an outgrowth of 30 years of contestation after emancipation in the South between free people, white farmers and workers, and a governing planter merchant capitalist class. Tension was roiled at various moments in various places by more or less successful alliances of free people and white farmers and workers, which all crested in the populist uprising in the early 1890s, which was crushed. It's not surprising it was crushed. It was crushed because the ruling class has all the power, basically. But they crushed it. What we think of as the Jim Crow order as a coherent social system was the outgrowth of that defeat in the sense that once the planters got the upper hand, crushed the uprising, they moved quickly to disfranchise more than 90% of the black population, take the votes away. And as much as a quarter to a third of the white population, depending on the state you're in, Jim Crow understood as an explicit codified regime of mandatory racial hierarchy and white supremacy that covered as many areas of life as it could possibly cover was the outgrowth of that defeat. Well, how that era connects with our era is that its internal contradictions and breakdowns or led to a breakdown, prompted, again, partly by exogenous factors like the need for Black unskilled labor in the factories and mills and slaughterhouses of the North and the Northeast that, that provokes a great migration out of the South and the cities in the South, which changes you know, the nature of the national electoral political alliance. Blacks outside the South become key element of the New Deal coalition, which then encourages more in the way of explicit anti discriminatory programs and arguments coming out of the national government, what all three branches, like eventually, basically the same Supreme Court that upheld the Texas white primary in 1935. And the white primary, for listeners, was one of the many stratagems that Southerners employed to disfranchise Blacks after the defeat of populism. And it reduced simply to declaring the Democratic Party a private club, which had control over its membership and therefore claimed that the Democratic Party was able to prohibit Blacks from voting in its primary without violating the 15th Amendment. In Grovey v. Townsend in 1935, the Supreme Court upheld the white primary. Nine years later in 1944, in Smith v. Allwright, the same Supreme Court overruled it, right, overturned it, which says something about the substantial political shift that had taken place in that nine-year period. And 
to that extent, you know, the current moment of post-war politics is largely, and this is another conversation, but proceeds from the formation of a particular kind of racial liberalism that came out of the defeat of the most extreme expressions of imposed racial hierarchy under the Jim Crow system. Right. And we'll get to that kind of tracing that thread from the immediate right. post-war period into the post-segregationist period. But I want to, you know, I just maybe sit for a moment with this point that you've made about the historical timeline that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Jim Crow, as you as you narrate this, is consolidated really only in the first decade or so of the 20th century. And it's formal legal breakdown is in the mid-1960s. You enter the picture kind of two-thirds of the way into this into this right. story and your, yeah. and your conscious life really account is the last sixth of it let's say you know right. the last decade or decade and a half or so of the history of Jim Crow and so I mean a theme that runs through the book is sort of a first-hand account of life in a crumbling social order and that's I think a lot of really powerful stories come out of this and again you got to read the th read the book to really appreciate the complexity of the picture that Adolf provides but do you want to just talk about that a little bit some reflections on life in a social order that is on its last legs, but doesn't necessarily appear like it's on its last legs to those living it in real time. Yeah, I once heard Quentin Young say, and in fact, I end the book with this quote, that nobody, you're not even the most wild-eyed optimist or the most optimistic communist would have stood in 1950 and imagined that the back of this order would be broken by 1965. But in fact, it was. So yeah, I mean, I certainly had no idea that it was crumbling, but it didn't even seem to me that it was crumbling what well, when it became clear that it was funding, right? Like in the early 60s, right? What my experience of it was, was really more like both, you know, first of all, coming from outside the system and often going back and forth was like learning the protocols. And one thing I learned pretty early was that it wasn't like what I understand the South African apartheid system to be. The etiquette, as much as the rules vary depending on where you were. But one thing that made it especially stressful, one might even say terroristic, is that no matter where you were, Black people were always expected to know the rules, right? Which is the reason, as I said in that vignette that I mentioned in 1966, well, when I got dropped off on the runway of an airport in El Dorado, Arkansas in 1966, because after the Public Accommodations Act was passed and the white and colored signs had been taken down, I saw there were two entries to the terminal and there's nobody around. And I just sat in the cold breeze until my connection came because I didn't want to risk going in the wrong door inadvertently. So there was that kind of uncertainty. I just mentioned to a friend of mine who was in town uh, from Jersey a couple of days ago as we drove past near the Orleans Parish Courthouse. And I saw, I mentioned this in the book too, that emblazoned on the front of the courthouse is the impartial administration of justice is the foundation of liberty. And I've cursed that every time I ever passed it in my life once I was old enough to read it. So like the arbitrariness of it and the shifting uh, tides were also part of the story. For example, several states in the South, Louisiana was one of them, didn't didn't outlaw interracial competition in sporting events until after the Brown decision as part of massive resistance. So there's stuff like that happening, right? When the Homer Adolph Plessy uh, boarded a train here in 1892 in league with both the Comité de the Black, I mean, or the mainly Black civil rights group and the Eastern Louisiana Railroad to challenge the recently passed separate car law, I mean, state law, because neither had an interest in imposing this law, right? I think the railroad for obvious reasons and Plessy for obvious reasons. When the city of New Orleans was forced to impose 
Jim Crow on streetcars. I think this was after World War One, or maybe around World War One. It may have been as late as the 20s. There's a lot of local resistance and opposition to it from whites as well as blacks, not necessarily out of commitment to brotherhood and civil rights, but because it just seemed like an unnecessary inconvenience, right, to impose on people. And of course, once it's imposed, it becomes something else, right? It becomes a something one is more or less committed to. But another reason that I took the tact that I did of trying to explore the quotidian is to underscore that no matter how people felt or thought that they felt about an abstraction called white supremacy, it was still nonetheless possible to maintain civil and humane and more or less egalitarian limits. And the relations across the racial lines in everyday life, like in neighborhoods or commercial transactions or that sort of thing. So, I mean, I know I relate a case when I was in ninth grade, I got busted shoplifting a bag of potato chips. And the proprietors, who were, as I recall, a young white couple, scolded me, chastised me, threatened me. But they didn't, as I wrote, I expect the way that they treated me would, would not have been all that different from the way that they would want someone to treat a kid of theirs who was in the same position. This was a few months before the school desegregation controversy here, when whites rioted all over the city because of the resistance to school desegregation. And I said in, the, said in the book, I had no idea how that couple would have lined up on a school desegregation controversy. You know, I know what would make for a good good story that you know, Spielberg would like. I know what would make for a good story that Ava DuVernay would like, and they're quite different. But I have no idea. But the point is that they could do both at the same time, right? I mean, you could be committed to white supremacy in the abstract or as an overarching framework, and at the same time, operate in quite unpredictable ways with respect to individual interactions and stuff. So and that's one thing. I mean, yeah, it's also the case I mean, that even living through the cataclysms of last years of the order didn't really seem like it was living through the cataclysms of the last year, years of the order. Partly because, so I was eight when the Montgomery bus boycott happened. I was 10 when Eisenhower sent the troops to Little Rock. So the idea of challenges to Jim Crow, and my parents were friendly with the bases, so we went up to see them during the Little Rock fight. And I had to do stuff like lie down in the back seat to make sure not to get shot by snipers and stuff and go past the bodyguards guarding the house. But, you know, it's kind of funny. Normal life is whatever you experience for a kid. So it didn't occur to me that these were the paroxysms of a system in crisis. But and once again, you know, the owl of Minerva flies only at dusk, right? It's only after the fact that you can see the order for what it was and chart periods in it. So I think that's another reason that it's going to look back on it. But I'm especially concerned, and I said this before, but I want to stress it again, like I'm especially concerned to promote an historicist way of thinking about the relation between the past and present, right? That, that the past, I wouldn't go quite so far as to say it's a different country, but in fact, it ultimately is, right? I mean, and the way to understand how past and present relate I would argue strongly, isn't by going back to the past of uh, to find stories of inspiration and timeless verity, right? Like you go to a Chinese restaurant and break open a fortune cookie to find timeless verities, right? But the way to understand the relation between past and present is to look for tendencies, contradictions, forces that were forming and breaking down in the past that evolve again, more or less I mean, indirectly, right? I mean, not what in a stochastic way even to produce the present or at least evolve in ways that can help us make sense of the present. I mean, one of the, I think, lessons I've taken from you is to think of history processually. That, I think, is an insight that's really valuable in terms of 
Well, that makes my entire time. teaching career worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't never reach into the grab bag of the past, but try to understand <laughs> understand the process. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about New Orleans, but you've been talking mm-hmm. about it a bit. You know, again, as you mentioned, there you you write at some point. You know, there are certain constants in this regime, right? There's a quote in there: "A system of inequality as blunt and upfront as a Jim Crow order could infiltrate it and shaped every interaction, every life step." But it was also varied, and it was varied between place right. within place between city and rural and so on. And a lot of your experience and actually where you are right now is in New Orleans, which is a somewhat unique place. So I don't know, I just think it might be of interest to talk a little bit about New Orleans historically, what's mm-hmm. made it, what it was, why that shaped your experience of the regime the way it did. And so Oh, on. sure. Yeah. When I looked at the question, the first thing I thought was, well, I didn't really experience, like, like despite all those years that, that I lived in the South prior to that, I didn't really experience what we think of as a Southern accent until I went to college in North Carolina. So it took me about six months to be able to, what would stop translating back and forth because like the local accents here are like much closer to Brooklyn or to the you know, Caribbean. Like we often, I was just telling my buddy, like they often call this the northernmost point of the Caribbean. You know, the racial rules were kind of lax here. That's one thing, right? They weren't that lax, right? But they were lax enough that you had a little latitude to operate in, right? And I think that's partly also because of the ethnic composition of the city, which is also different from most of the rest of the South. I mean, till the until well into the 70s, the largest nominally white population here was Italian, and they were in vast majority Sicilian. And there was a heavy Irish population here too. And the city is still, I think, the second largest city in Honduras and the second largest city in Belize. And that's not counting the, you know, the Cubans who trickled in like my grandfather, but the bigger trickle that came after 1962. And when you kind of stir that all together with the Islano population from the Canary Islands, which came here uh, more to the uh, to the bayous and Plaquemine and San Bernard parishes, but in the city too, you know, 1840s, 50s, 60s, whatever. Among other things, it was kind of difficult to impose punishment for transgressions or even to notice transgressions against the petty apartheid, because between those populations and the Black Creole population, there's just a phenotypic blur, right? They're indistinguishable, basically. If that's something, the fact that the city was heavily Catholic meant that things you know, went down in a slightly different way. I mean, it, was, it wasn't so much that the churches were segregated, but there were, were in the family white churches, there were there an informal racial etiquette such that Blacks wouldn't take communion until after whites took it. But curiously, the confession lines weren't segregated. So I don't know. So, I mean, there was that, but the city was also always a wide open town and a vice town. So like anybody who knows anything about wide open towns knows that the rules are always kind of fluid around the edges. So, I mean, there was that. New Orleans for much of the first half of the 20th century was a pretty heavily union town. And in fact, the year that Plessy bought that first class train ticket and the year that the state tried to impose rigid racial hierarchy or began trying to impose it was the year of a very successful or an ultimately successful general strike here uh, that began on the docks, but kind of spread out to the trades 
and to other unions. And the strikers actually withstood really heavy pressure. I mean, the mayor was in support of the strike, it's Patrick, but there's very heavy pressure from the governor, from business, from opinion-shaping elites to use white supremacy as a wedge to break the strike and it failed, right? It failed. And also like it's a little trivium worth noting, I guess, but the famous po' boy sandwich, right? I mean, down here, maybe some of the common listeners know it. Yeah, it was actually produced during a 1929 biracial, interracial transit worker strike that a restaurant operator who supported the strike would just start making these sandwiches and two slices of hard French bread with a piece of meat in between. So in that sense, it was like different in that respect too. But the city wasn't anti-union like in a way a lot of other places were around a stop. Right, right. You can always feel like you're on the right side of history when you eat a po' boy in New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but, which is good. Yeah, uh, yeah, which is good because you're not on the right side of flagging up your arteries. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, so I want I mean, you know, we've been talking a little bit about some of the sort of, well, in the book, especially you get into this in greater detail, the, again, the local variation, the sort of the way mm -hmm. that norms and etiquette deferred in different places. And so I want to kind of approach this broader theme from a different angle, which is the question of the stratification among Black Southerners mm. themselves. You make it a point of emphasizing in the book that you are a product of the Black middle class. All four of your grandparents were college graduates. And you write that we were all unequal, but some were more unequal than others. And then you go on to say that these differences in social position would prove to have significant impact on the shaping of Black politics after the segregationist regime's demise. This is a point that you develop, and especially, you know, in the post-segregation regime extensively in your scholarly work. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about this in, you know, it, during the Jim Crow period. And then if you want to trace out kind of some of the mm -hmm. entailments of this in the post-65 era as well. Oh, well, it just seems like the most straightforward thing in the world to me that like, what I mean, just as natural disasters don't affect everybody the same way. And one of the differences in how they affect people has to do with class and resources, right? If you want to think of kind of perverse, but to think of the Jim Crow order that's imposed as a natural disaster on black people. Well, it's not going to hit everybody the same way. It's just that simple. So, and this is something else that's sort of counterproductive about standard accounts and the oppression porn, right, as a trope that drives them. Because what we tend to get is outrage at respectable black people being jacked up and killed when they should have had insulation of class privilege. And that's one way to look at it. I think another way to look at it is that they had the insulation of class privilege that had prevented them from suffering a lot of the everyday threats and indignities. So for instance, yeah, I mentioned, I mean, that my family picked and chose where we did our shopping for clothes or hats or shoes or whatever, based on totally idiosyncratic calculation of which stores or merchants imposed less in the way of front to dignity basically. And other people in that social stratum did the same thing. But that's, of course, a matter of choice or a domain of choice that presumes that you have the economic wherewithal to make choices about where you buy clothes or even to buy clothes, for God's sake, right, on a regular basis. So that's one way it shows that. The schools you go to can insulate you from contact with dangerous whites, basically. The jobs you work. But I think I also mentioned that there's a tendency to think that you know, middle-class Black people were more race-conscious than working-class Black people because there were indignities that they would refuse to take that demanded to be called by, you know, not by their first name, right? And in big cities often could get away with it and often couldn't. Well, the working-class people were no less concerned or affronted by the indignity, and they understood the racial protocol and what was the meaning about it. 
But they found other ways around it. What I mentioned, for instance, in the book, and like this is quite like the story that probably a lot of you folks know about, you know, the genesis of the word boss in the antebellum white working class in the North. What was an aversion or grew out of an aversion to being called master? Well, what a lot of Blacks, and I guess there were other terms like this elsewhere in the South, but, but in New Orleans, it was standard for white workers to refer to the Black workers to refer to the white employer or supervisor as cap, which was short for captain. And that was a more or less clever way, coy way of getting around calling a master. And then they started doing it to one another. So, I mean, that further was a disruption. But like here also, there were like bars that would let you in on the DL and right, all kinds of stuff like that. So you had a black population. And I mean, I've got a chapter on black politics in New Orleans, really across the sweep of the 20th century into the current era in a book that Ken Moore and I have forthcoming called You Can't Get There From Here. But there had been something of petition politics in the city consistently from the 1890s, right? And by the 1920s, it takes more of the shape of an ethnic ward politics. It's class skewed completely. After Smith v. Allwright, in 1940, there were 400 Black people who were registered to vote in Orleans Parish in 1952, there were 28,000 plus. So that encourages a big change and was coincident with and also drove the emergence among whites of what's often described as a moderate segregationist politics, uh, the focus of which was while maintaining the structures of petty apartheid intact was focused on creating or opening spaces for greater economic opportunity for Black people, which generally meant the middle class. And private philanthropists were involved in that, as well as you know, sort of Southern liberal politicians. All right, so this regime evolves across the 50s and into the 60s. And meanwhile, the Black population is growing as a percentage of the overall population. By the mid-60s, there's just about a Black majority. Moon Landrieu is elected mayor, and he brings Blacks into City Hall, into responsible positions, and supports Blacks running for office. And he succeeded by Dutch Morial, the first Black mayor, in 1977. So the stratum of Black people who benefit from this principally and who come into government. Well, basically, and you know, this is like a quirk of my own family's social position here, but like uh, the first wave of Black functionaries and elected officials were by and large people within a decade or so of my age, um, either way, who were out of my social circle. Like I remember one time I drove down here with Toure and we stopped at a favorite po' boy shop and I saw an election poster for a high school classmate of mine. I thought, <laughs> oh my God, how can this be, right? So, so that's something else that's been interesting to me over the years, watching how the post-segregation political regime has evolved from the kind of nice Mardi Gras viewing stand perch of an inside-outsider, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to kind of jump off from there to how you start and end the book, really, which is with recalling of so what you describe as a somewhat strange experience of returning to the South for the right. first time, you know, after many years in, in 1981, early in the Reagan administration, right. and being struck, as you put it, by, quote, how much the way things had changed in the region seemed to underscore the ways they hadn't, and vice versa, right. how the ways they haven't changed seemed to underscore the ways they have. And you close the book by returning to this in a really powerful way, I think. So mm -hmm. can you just assess what has changed in the South since 1965 and what hasn't? And I should say, this was, I think, uh, the subject of an essay that you assigned for some of us uh, <laughs> or, or, or back in the day. So I guess this will be good for me to see whether I... Whether I, I uh, see you go back right. and read that essay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think I say at the end that I realized that what made the experience seem like Brigadoon was the persistence of scar tissue that colored the way that I looked at the contemporary array of social relations, right? So there were habits of interaction formed in earlier era that persist. So it's like an appendix, basically, right? In uh, the human anatomy, right? I mean, it used to perform a function, doesn't anymore, it's just there, mess things up, basically, or to do something else. But what, what hasn't changed, right, is the fundamental class hierarchy on which the social order is, is based. Um, it's the class order persists, and it's further, well, I wouldn't say it's complicated. Once segregation was defeated, then the predictable sociological dynamics that would have occurred or that should have occurred probably began to occur without constraint. So you've got in this city a really pretty seamlessly interracial governing class. And not only, but for, for the other of my two essays in the book I'm doing with Warren, I examined racial disparities in the full service restaurant industry and the hotel industry here as part of an argument I'm making about post-Katrina and disparity. And you find sharp racial disparities. But in the in the full service restaurant industry, they're sharper than they are in the hotel industry. And they exist only in the seven highest paying, or, or no, the 7% of highest paid workers. Among the 93% of comparatively low wage workers in the full service restaurant industry, there's no discernible pattern of racial or ethnic differentiation from occupation to occupation whatsoever. In the hotel industry, the degree of disparity is not quite as great at at the income level, but it exists like only among the 25% of highest paid occupations. For 75% of those workers, there's it's random, basically, like in racial terms as to which job we hold. So one thing that that says for us about a benefit of sort of breaking with a strict racial disparitarian understanding of inequality that depends on analogies with Jim Crow or slavery is that most Black workers would be much better off by raising the wage floor of the low-wage workers than they would be by eliminating the disparities among the high-wage workers. And I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to eliminate the disparities among high-wage workers, but if you want bigger bang for the buck and to do stuff for Black workers, unionization and sharp increases in the wage scales here would do a lot more. But I guess that's not so much a response to how things have changed and not changed coexist. But I guess it is a statement about how cultivating a perspective that emphasizes the ways that things haven't changed is also a class program and a part of a class politics. Yeah, you know, I was thinking earlier today, one time you, you said to me that the suggestion that nothing has ever changed is really a dystopian way of thinking about <laughs> Well, it really world. is. God, it's horrible, you know? isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think that's useful to reflect upon. So here's the question. As late as the early uh, 1980s, at least some observers still thought that Southern economic modernization might lead to assimilation to a Northern New Deal labor regime. How could the South emerge from all the transformations of the 60s and 70s and still have a more anti-union, anti-welfare regime than most of the rest of the country? Granted the decline of the New Deal everywhere and the spread of um, the Southern regime to the deindustrialized Midwest. I think this is another one of those stories about how I mean, history moves in unpredictable ways. And people don't ever think about this. But the essential difference between North and South, you know, with respect to anti-union sentiment, it's got nothing to do with culture or race or anything like that, except in this way. Disfranchisement is the key, right? I mean, disfranchisement at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, because what it did was, uh, yeah, we all know it took the vote away from Black. But the other thing that it did was it robbed working class 
whites of potential electoral allies and put them in a position where they were operating in a radically asymmetrical electorate, such that they had to find ways to craft understandings of their interests that fit within the program of a ruling class that had absolutely no reason or desire to make any concessions toward labor, and especially because of what they had just gone through with populism, right? They felt that, you know, workers had bitten the hands of Fatima and so forth and so on. So where in the North, you could find a John Altgeld or a Vito Marcantonio or um, the governor of Michigan or the attorney general, Murphy, Frank Murphy, who was actually pro-labor. There was no equivalent in the South, really. Uh, so the ruling class got to do what they wanted to do. It was also the case that the industries that moved south were among the most anti-union in the country, textile being at the top of the heap. So they continued hiring goons, basically, to crush union organizing campaigns long after the NLRA had given some protection to workers in the north. And then the last bit of the question, and it provides the rest of the answer. Right. Because with the decline of unionism and retreat from the New Deal, we see less of the South becoming like the North and more of the North becoming like the South. That's also a great question. As good and well, not not a great note, but it's as instructive <laughs> a note as there is for us to wrap this one up on. So Adolf Reed, thank you so much. It's been very fun. Oh, uh, hey, man. Thanks a lot. It's always this. great to hang out. Thanks, everyone. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, see you next time. All right. Take care. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. To subscribe to New Labor Forum and or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.